morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, December 8th, we are studying the hymn on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist's Cry. That's hymn number 344 in Lutheran Service Book. John the Baptist figures prominently during the season of Advent. This hymn by Charles Coffin is one of many that invites us to listen to John's preaching that Jesus, our Savior, is here. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppy serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, very glad to be back with you again today. Pastor Hoppy, let's get started just talking a little bit about the season of Advent. We're a little bit farther along in the season of Advent now. What's the importance of Advent as a season in the church year and for the life of the Christian? Well, I think obviously the kind of the key theme of Advent is Christ's coming. And I think first we often jump, especially because our culture, you know, kind of pushes us sooner and sooner towards thoughts of Christmas, uh, even as we try to keep that true meaning of Christmas before, uh, you know, our people in the church and just ourselves, you know, that's the first coming, I think, that comes to mind. But also, again, we definitely uh, get lots of scriptures that lead us to think about that final coming of Christ as well. And therefore, right, it's a season where we're called to prepare for that time. Uh, and there's many ways, I guess you could say we could prepare, but the chief kind of message that sort of echoes throughout this season uh, is that of the call to repent, uh, to uh, recognize our sinfulness, to confess that before God, and and even to uh, you know leave those things uh, behind. Well, okay. With that, with that note on the call to repentance, that really kind of goes right into the next thing I was going to ask you is we get a, a hymn about John the Baptist today, or John the Baptist figures prominently in this hymn and in many Advent hymns. So that was going to be my, my question is why, why John the Baptist? Why is he such a, a central figure in the season of Advent? Right. Sometimes, and I get there here a little bit, maybe of a long way, but I always, the picture I have in my head of Advent is always Jesus in the womb of Mary. And mm -hmm. I like that, right, just because it both gives us that sense of anticipation uh, and also, you know, reminds us, again, what it is that we're anticipating. And I think it's, you know, a common enough thing, obviously, in our world that people can relate to. And, and of course, one of the things we get while Jesus uh, is uh, in Mary's womb is, of course, the uh, gathering together of Mary uh, and Elizabeth. Uh, and Elizabeth, of course, has John the Baptist uh, in her womb. And there's that you know beautiful story of uh, John uh, leaping for joy uh, in his womb. But I mean, just literally, John the Baptist, both as far as you know, when you're reading the account of Scripture, and just historically, is that immediate. A precursor 
uh, to the arrival of the Christ. And so John kind of becomes linked with Advent because that's exactly sort of where he fits. Right. So, and this is what's striking about Advent is that in terms of the narrative, John fits in Advent because he's right there with Jesus. He's six months ahead of him in terms of, you know, when the visitation happens, Elizabeth is six months along, Mary has just become pregnant, but he's he's right there. And yet when you get to the Advent readings, while some years you may hear the visitation or perhaps particularly during an Advent midweek service, you'll hear that part of Luke chapter one. When it comes to the Sunday mornings, you more often focus on John as the preacher, the grown man. And of course, in the in terms of the narrative, Jesus himself is already grown man too. So you're not talking about baby John the Baptist or baby Jesus at that point. So how does how does John's preaching then fit into that same theme? Yeah. So his preaching, right, is that of repentance. And his preaching, you know, when we think about this sort of what repentance is, you know, this is where we get this language which we'll get in the hymn a little bit as well when we get into discussing that. But, you know, this idea of making straight, crooked things and and lowering the high places and, you know, building up the low places, all of those kind of images there are what Jesus, or excuse me, is what John the Baptist is to do uh, in preparation for Jesus in order that, again, if you just take that image of sort of making uh, the road for Jesus to travel is, the ideal situation would have been simply if John the Baptist would have preached the law, led all people to repentance, and Jesus would have come and had none of that work left to do and simply would have you know, delivered uh, the great news uh, of his life and death and resurrection. Uh, of course, not all repented, uh, so Jesus still had some law work to do on various people as well. Uh, but that's kind of the idea of what was supposed to happen, right? That John was going to, you know, turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to the fathers uh, in preparation for this saving one to come. So that's what we're going to encounter in this hymn. We're going to hear about the Baptist's cry in this hymn and how he calls to repent, but also to to trust in the Savior Jesus. Before we look a little more closely at this hymn in particular, Pastor Oppie, I've been asking all the guests this: what's your what is your favorite Advent hymn, and and a little bit about why? Sure, yeah, I, I think in recent years, uh, this hymn, which is number three hundred and forty-eight in Lutheran Service Book, "The King Shall Come When Morning Dawns," and I. I think part of why I love it is I, you know, it's it's not something that I was particularly, you know, familiar with growing up, and yet it's one of those that at least seems to me becomes a favorite quickly. Um, I think both because the the melody uh, is beautiful, but also you know the words are are simple enough uh, to grasp easily, and yet um, at the same time are so deep in there content. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, this one particularly focuses in on Jesus's return on the last day, you know, it makes reference to his first coming. Uh, But I think, you know, when we think about our people, um, you know, obviously we want to reflect on the incarnation, on Jesus's birth. But I think also, right, we always need to be uh, putting before them this hope that is to come. And I think sometimes even our people grasp that a little better just because, especially as Americans, we're taught to be very forward thinking, I think, even more than, you know, thinking on the past. And there may need to be, to be some correction of that in certain ways. 
but here in Advent, right, to say, yeah, think to the future, all the way to the future, right? When yeah. when this one who once came as a little child right now uh, comes crowned with glory like the sun. Mm, very good. So hymn 348, pointing us forward to the day the king comes when morning dawns. And in this hymn, perhaps we'll see a little bit of that pointing forward as well, especially through the preaching from John the Baptist. Let's talk a little bit about the the hymn text. Any background on the author, the history of the text that, that would be helpful before we look at what it says in the text? Right. The author of this hymn, uh, Charles Coffin, was actually a uh, a French uh, Roman Catholic, and and they say you know he was um, very good at uh, academics and administration. So he ends up being the rector of the University of Paris, and yet a lot of people they say don't you know really ever even hardly note that because what he was most known for was his writing of hymns. Uh, one of the things, especially from a Lutheran perspective, that would be interesting to us is that. Uh, he was very much uh, a, a one who believed that the Roman Catholic Church needed to be reformed and needed to be reformed, particularly in the area of the understanding of grace. Um, so much so that when he died, he was not given uh, a Christian burial by the Roman Catholic Church because he would not uh, yield uh, to, um, you know, simply saying that that grace was, you know, something that man had to cooperate in. He just would not yield to that. And so, you know, uh, this is not a, we would not say a Lutheran. I think this is one of those in uh, our minds, you know, if we knew this guy contemporaneously, we'd say, well, he's a Lutheran, but he doesn't know it yet. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's right. Uh, He's, you know, his theology (laughs) seemed to be there. Uh, Of course, he lived after Luther. So I'm sure he was probably influenced, uh, you know, by Luther. The other interesting fact about this is that this hymn was written in Latin, uh, which was pretty uh, uncommon. You know, this hymn was written in uh, 1736, and at this time, that would have been really uncommon to write in Latin. Uh, and in fact, they say that throughout the years, this hymn is sort of mistaken as a older hymn simply because it is written in Latin. But then I guess, uh, you know, it's it's translated into English by name, a, a man named John Chandler in uh, 1837. And then it's been, you know, brought to us at least um, with a tune. Uh, and my Latin's always not very good. So good thing we're not doing this in the original text, you know. That's right. <laughs> uh, but the tune is, you know, pure nobis. Uh, I don't know if you want to correct me there, but it's good enough for me. All right. <laughs> um, which is this uh, man named Praetorius uh, wrote this uh, tune. Uh, And I just thought I'd mention that particularly because uh, in recent years, I've noticed around Christmas that a lot of Lutheran pastors will sort of post a link to uh, what's called Lutheran Mass for Christmas Morning, which is uh, a piece of music written by this man that is a a beautiful uh, kind of reflection to listen to uh, if not on Christmas morning in the Christmas season, and so uh, that, but that's the same gentleman um, who gave us this tune. Hmm. In terms of where this hymn might show up during the season of Advent, is there any particular use for for the season of Advent? Yeah, so it's it's actually usually ascribed to be the hymn of the day uh, for Advent two uh, in our current hymnal. 
But of course, uh, you know, sometimes Advent three is just the continuation of the John the Baptist story. So if you, uh, for some reason, don't use it Advent two, I know I have at times and ended up using it in Advent three, uh, either also or because I didn't use it for some reason uh, on that day. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at the text. Again, this is hymn number 344 in Lutheran Service Book, On Jordan's Bank, the Baptist's Cry. We'll start with stanza one. On Jordan's Bank, the Baptist's Cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. That's stanza one of the hymn, On Jordan's Bank, the Baptist's Cry. So, Pastor Hoppy, you and I were talking a little bit before the show started that there's a few words in here that maybe we don't use all that often in modern English. And I think there's a couple in this first stanza. Just help us to understand what what we are saying in this first stanza. And we'll talk about what it what it means and its importance for us as Christians. Right. So, you know, kind of in that first, you know, two lines there, we, you know, end up there with announces that the Lord is nigh. And again, like you said, nigh is not a word we use a lot in everyday language, but, you know, it simply means is near, right? Uh, And near in the sense here of, you know, uh, the old children's song, you know, coming around the mountain when she comes, right? It's it's kind of this sense of at any point, um, you know, the Lord is is coming near. And so it, it really is a word that carries with it that Advent sense of anticipation, uh, and then we also get this hearken, right? Which again is not a word I think we use a lot. I do think every once in a while, you know, when we see something from the Royals uh, over in England, I think every once in a while the guy, uh, they call him the crier, I think, right? Will cry out, hearken everyone. And that means simply, you know, listen, hear. Um, and so, yeah, we do get a few of these terms that are not things that uh, we think of, but you know, in one sense, they can kind of broaden our vocabulary. And I think they are sort of chosen, you know, and left in our hymnody rather than sort of making them easier to understand, uh, to kind of note the, you know, the the miraculous nature of the incarnation. Yeah. In the last line of this stanza, the word tidings means news. Perhaps that's still a bit more familiar to, to some English speakers due to the predominance of the King James version of the Christmas story from Luke 2. I believe the word tidings shows up in, in the angel's announcement in Luke 2 in the King James. And so maybe that was a little bit more familiar, but a few of them here that, that we want to make sure we understand. So basically what the hymn writer is is helping us to do here is he's he's putting us there in what, pick your chapter, Matthew 3 or Mark 1 or Luke 3 or John 1, I think, they're the chapters where you've got John the Baptist standing there by the Jordan River, and he's preaching, as you said earlier, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near, and so wake up and listen, listen to this preacher, John, because you need to hear what he has to say. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one thing I I did uh, kind of struck me is that, you know, and sometimes this is just my brain, right? Sometimes I get words slightly wrong, you know, I think I know things, but I kind of wondered if for most people, right, if they think this hymn is, you know, on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cries, right? With, Mm. um, you know, it's one of those where I had to look at it again and go, wait a second. No, it's the Baptist cry. Uh, And why does that matter? Well, the message is the thing that is the most important, even beyond the man, right? Uh, Because the message is that of repentance. The message is that of the, the coming 
Christ, right? And, and that's what needs to be listened to. And yet, you know, when you listen to John's message, you might think at first that it's all bad news, right? Because he definitely has a, a, a corrective tone, to say the least, through much of his uh, preaching. And yet, right, his overall message is or are those glad tidings, right? Um, the, the good news that the Christ comes uh, not to destroy, but to save. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you pointing that out because it's very easy to picture John there in the wilderness wearing his strange clothing and eating his strange food and crying out repent and calling people a brood of vipers. And, and you forget that the whole reason that he preaches that way is to prepare for this coming one whom he identifies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that actually is good news. That is glad tidings. And so to recognize John not as this preacher of doom and gloom, but actually a preacher of glad tidings is very, very helpful. And I appreciate the way you you put the emphasis on, and this hymn puts the emphasis on, it is the Baptist's cry. So it's not only, okay, we're going to picture ourselves in the wilderness listening to John, but we're going to, to listen to this message of glad tidings pointing us to the Lamb of God, no matter who is the one preaching it. So whether it's it's Jesus later who preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or his disciples whom he sends out later to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or pastors and congregations who are proclaiming that news, that message is still to be heard and, and is to wake you up, even if it's not the Baptist himself who's speaking it. Yeah, and I think too, then it, it helps us with our own proclamation, right? Because, you know, sometimes we can go to one side or the other sort of when it comes to uh, law and gospel in the sense of, you know, sometimes we're so upset by something someone is doing that, that we understand to be wrong that we can preach a message of repentance uh, that sort of ignores or we forget that it is to lead to the good news. We're just we so want to correct the person that we forget that the only real, you know, good reason to ultimately correct someone is to lead them, right, that they might understand their sin and their need for a Savior so that when the Savior arrives, uh, they might rejoice in it. So, so there's that side. But on the flip side, that the message of preparing for Christ often does involve law. And there's some people, right, that just kind of want to go right to Jesus loves you, even if the person doesn't understand why that matters. And, you know, John just it, is a beautiful uh, example of how law and gospel works, that when you have both at their full strength, right, that is what actually calls people uh, away from their sins and, and to look for a Savior, and then that Savior appears. Talk a little bit about the word awake in the, the third line, awake and hearken for he brings. Why, why the word awake? Yeah, throughout the scriptures, awake is a word uh, that's used for repentance. And again, I think you can get the picture here is that often, um, you know, falling away from the Lord or not walking according to his ways is thought of as falling into a spiritual slumber, a, a spiritual sleep. And so the call is, you know, wake up, get up. And you almost can think of this, you know, like a, a parent perhaps to their teenage child, right? Where they just, you know, I don't got anything to do. I just want to kind of slumber here. And, you know, the, the parent recognizes, no, there's work to do, right? So uh, awake, you know, and, and this is a very similar thing. But here the work is 
you know, that of, again, just hearing the message of God and, and repenting due to it. All right, let's take a look at stanza two of this hymn. The text reads, Then cleansed be every life from sin, make straight the way for God within, and let us all our hearts prepare for Christ to come and enter there. That is stanza two of the hymn on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist Cry, number 344 in Lutheran's service book. All right, so the the image that we get in the first line is a one of cleansing. Then cleansed be every life from sin. Yeah, and so here, obviously, you know, one of the links is, you know, John's baptism, of course. Um, I don't think any human that's ever lived at any time does not associate water with cleaning, right? I mean, there's obviously other associations as well, um, but you think of all the things that have been used to clean in our modern world, and yet, right, probably the base element in even most of those cleaners is still water, right? Um so obviously there is talk here of the water in baptism, but then the cleansing itself, right, is, is you know, of every life from sin. Um, and so this is both, you know, the sort of mental recognition um, that our lives are sinful, uh, that confession of sins that flows from that. But it's also, you know, especially as we hear John the Baptist, you know, talking to the people, it is clear that he urges them to action as well to what you know the scriptures call the fruits of repentance. So, so if you have stolen twenty dollars and you say that you're really sorry about it, the you know simple natural thing to do. It's not really you know an additional step. It's not something to do you know in order to um, uh, you know complete your repentance, but it is something that just is the natural out pouring or outflowing, I should say, of repentance that you would give the $20 back. Um, and so, you know, this here, I think, is really this idea. And we have to get this because, you know, it is John the Baptist's message that prepares the way, but it also is a work that, again, has to be done uh, in the hearts of men. Um, and so there is that leaving behind of sin. That's part of how the road is leveled for Christ to come, right? If we're continuing in sin, then like I said before, there's a lot of law work left to do. But if if we're at the point where we have grown to recognize and despise our sin, then we're ready for Jesus to ride in and save us. So I, I love the the connection between the word cleansing and baptism, not only because we're talking about John the Baptist, who was baptizing people, but also just the, the nature of baptism and the way that this first line goes, then cleansed be every life from sin. This is a, you know, this is something that's happening to you. And baptism is that gift by which God does forgive your sins. He cleanses you. He washes you clean. And as you've been saying, that then bears fruit in our lives. And so I think, I mean, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about in this second stanza, uh, what you were saying, reminds me very much of the way Luther speaks of baptism in the small catechism, particularly the fourth part where he talks about, you know, what does baptizing with water indicate? And he talks about that daily contrition and repentance that drowns the old Adam in us, and then the new man who daily emerges and arises to live before God in righteousness and purity forever, that, that this cleansing in baptism is a gift. God, God cleanses us. He washes us clean. 
And then that bears fruit in our lives. And John is one of the best preachers of that message that we find in scripture. And, and that, I think that's an important recognition in this hymn that this cleansing happens in baptism, lest we think this is all about, okay, fix your life right now. It's all on you. That's not what John's saying. And that's not what this hymn is saying either. No, I, I certainly think that's correct, right? That, and it's certainly the emphasis that we need ultimately to have is that, right, we cannot uh, cleanse ourselves from sin. And, and I guess the only caution there is just to say that we also uh, cannot have a repentance that doesn't bear fruit. And the reason for that is simply, right, genuine repentance does, right? Just like you know, faith as well, right, is going to bear good works. And again, it's not that we have to add something to faith. It's just the nature of what faith does. And it's also here with the, it's what the nature of repentance does. Yeah, that's right. Repent and bear fruit. And, and again, John is the perfect preacher of that. Uh, among, among others in the scriptures, he, he really gets that straight. He, he preaches both repentance and the fruit that then follows, and he, he won't let you slide off by any means. But talk about the, the second part of this stanza. So the first image is a cleansing from sin. And then the second is a making straight. And I, I suppose the opposite would be uh, crooked. So what's, what's going on in that second line? Yeah. So this really is that image of sort of a road for Jesus to travel, right? Um, I, I always remember when I was in seminary, um, the Pope came to town uh, on a visit. And when they did that, they put out in the paper, you know, if you don't, aren't aware, St. Louis, you know, is a very Lutheran city, but it's also a very Roman Catholic uh, city. And so they put out, you know, the map of exactly where uh, the Pope would be traveling throughout the city so that people that wish to, uh, you know, go and see him could. But the most interesting thing to me was after that, you could watch around town that that road that he was going to travel was being fixed up, right? Where there were potholes, they were being fixed. And, you know, where the sidewalk needed to be, you know, uh, made uh, more uh, sturdy or whatever, those things were being fixed. Now, again, right, we certainly, you know, uh, don't want to mistake the Pope for Christ, right? I think all of our readers would, would <laughs> give a, a hearty amen there. But the picture was is always something that stuck with me as this is sort of the make straight the way, right? That again, we're that repentance makes it, I think it's fair to say this, easy for Jesus to come and do what he loves to do the most, which is show mercy, give life, give the forgiveness of sins. And if you've got a crooked way to travel, right? Um, if you think about taking a very windy road. Uh, you know how hard that can be to travel, uh, especially if it goes on for any distance. But if you have that straight path in front of you, uh, it's very easy to drive. So John preaches, make that way straight, and it is the Word of God that makes that way straight as you hear it, and the Holy Spirit works faith in your heart. We're going to keep looking at this hymn on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about the hymn on Jordan's Bank, The Baptist's Cry with Pastor Phil Hoppy. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 8th. We're studying the hymn on Jordan's Bank, The Baptist Cry. That's number 344 in Lutheran Service Book. Our guest today is Pastor Philip Hoppe, who serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were looking at stanza two. That stanza concludes like this, and let us all our hearts prepare for Christ to come and enter there. So it seems that this is building off of that previous line, the idea of making straight the way for God within. We're talking about, you know, winding roads. Well, we're not talking about a, a literal road that you would drive from here to there on. We're talking about the road into our heart. So let our hearts, let us all our hearts prepare for Christ to come and enter there. Yeah, and so you know, there's this this kind of idea, right? That yeah, that the overall image now here is that in this hymn is that yeah, Christ is going to come and he's going to enter our hearts and dwell there. Um, and you know, as I was uh, beginning to think about this, you know, I thought, you know, most often it seems to me that you know when we get this indwelling language that the person referenced of the trinity is is the holy spirit that was kind of my initial mm. thought and i still think that's probably it's probably at least 50% of kind of the references uh, but there are a significant uh, number of references uh, to jesus himself you know the second person of the trinity uh, dwelling within us and maybe you know again that shouldn't surprise us being the nature of the trinity uh, but I was kind of surprised at how many of those there are. And then even, you know, we we use this phrase a lot of, you know, uh, Jesus in my heart or something close to that. Um, and I was trying to think, well, you know, is there a passage that specifically talks about him sort of, you know, taking up re residence in our hearts? Um, and Ephesians 3 uh, certainly does do that. It You know, it uh, there's this beautiful thing, you know, where, um, you know, Paul is saying that he bows his knees uh, before the Father, and he's giving all these reasons, right? Basically, all these reasons about how great Christ is. Uh, but then he says, you know, in the middle of this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, right? Um, and it ends with this, you know, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, how would we be filled with all the fullness of God if Christ did not dwell in us, right? For he, he is the fullness of God. We're told that uh, throughout the scriptures. And then Paul's writings, you know, in particular, Colossians likes to use this language. Um, and so indeed, yes, Christ does come and dwell in our hearts, right? Uh, now, again, 
we're in English here, and, and I'm sure, you know, in different cultures, this would be translated a little bit differently. But for us, kind of that seat of the emotions are, uh, you know, the place where we, I guess, kind of would even, you know, kind of link with the, what do you want to say, the contemplation of the soul, you know, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's what we're preparing for in Christ. You know, uh, it comes so close to us that he even dwells inside of us. Yeah. And, and this, I mean, is a, again, a reminder that this is something that the Lord must do for us. I think when it comes to the, and it doesn't talk about necessarily dwelling in the heart, but all of the times the language of the heart does show up in the prophets and in the Old Testament, you know, you think about the the new heart that God promises to give in Ezekiel and the writing of his law on the hearts in, in Jeremiah, that the prophets will come and, and say, you know, you, you are doing everything outwardly, but there's no faith in your heart. It, it is a reminder to see how you can fall off on either side when it comes to the preaching of John the Baptist. On the one hand, you might say, yes, I repent, but there is no outward fruit. And we were talking about that earlier. On the other hand, you might start to do some of those outward things, but if there's no faith in the heart, you've missed it as well. John has has the preaching of both right there in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, in our uh, typical divine service, right, and especially divine service setting three, uh, we always get that right after the proclamation of the word, right, that offertory that asks for a, a clean heart, uh, because we do recognize this, that, you know, the law of God can reveal to us that the heart is not clean, that it's not uh, filled with the fullness of God in that, you know, in, in at least not what our lives are showing forward. Uh, and then, like you said, we don't say, well, I'll get back to you, God, once I've cleaned my heart. Uh, we ask him for one, and he is pleased to give us one. Hmm. Let's take a look at stanza three of the hymn. We hail thee as our Savior, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. Without thy grace, we waste away like flowers that wither and decay. That stands a three of the hymn on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist Cry. Here's another word that maybe needs just a a moment of explanation, Pastor Oppie. We hail thee. What does it mean to hail Jesus? Yeah, And so, I mean, this language of hail is sort of uh, the cry you would give to a king is, is kind of the image here, I believe. Uh, that, you know, uh, you could even, though, imagine, if you will, probably the biblical scene to kind of put in your head here is Jesus riding into Jerusalem and those who believe him to be the king, right, uh, singing, uh, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? They're, they're hailing him as Lord there. They're saying, this is the one. So it's kind of the thing you, you let go of uh, with your voice to indicate that you believe that this one is the king. So, okay, so we're hailing Jesus as the Savior, and then also as our refuge and our great reward. Talk about those two images, refuge and reward. Yeah, so refuge is a word that we find, you know, throughout uh, the Psalms in particular, though not just in the Psalms. Of course, Psalm 46, um, you know, our our God being our help, uh, our ever-present help in trouble, uh, the the language of refuge is all over that psalm, and of course, uh, for those of us uh, that are Lutherans, right, we end up with the hymn based on Psalm forty six of a mighty fortress, right. So that's kind of another word that would tie up there with refuge. It's a it's a safe place, right, that God uh, gives to us a safe, uh, you know, not in the sense that sometimes we use that in the modern sense of safe from kind of our emotions or something. 
uh, but safe from sin, safe from the devil, and ultimately uh, safe from death. Uh, and the word reward is another one that, uh, you know, is kind of all over the scripture, different places. But Abraham, I think this is probably kind of the seed of all of that, that God tells Abraham, you know, he is his great reward. Uh, and that goes forward in the scriptures all the way to this idea, you know, talk about another word we don't use a lot, but we'll get this sometimes in our hymnody in the scriptures that God comes with his recompense, you know. Uh, and that's no, another word we don't use a lot, but it's the same idea that he's bringing us a reward. Uh, and in some sense, the scripture says, right, for the the things we have done. And yet, you know, we always recognize the things we have done, all glory to Christ, right? Uh, but that's just the nature of God. He gives us a reward for something we didn't even truly work in ourselves, but he just loves to give. Yeah, one of the places that the word reward figures prominently is is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about things like fasting and giving and praying, and he talks about those who do it in public to be seen, and they receive their reward. He calls his disciples then to do such things in secret so that their father would be the one to see them, and that is their reward that comes from their father. And that, you know, kind of then culminates. And, and when he talks about you, you can only serve one master, you can't serve both God and money. Well, which is it that has the eternal reward that that would be with the Lord who has the treasure in heaven that doesn't rust, that can't be destroyed by moths. If you're looking for money here and now that will, will pass away. It is with the Lord that there is this. And I think that connects with the word refuge, this safe treasure, this safe reward, one that cannot be taken away, whereas all earthly treasures, those, as as the hymn goes on to say, those waste away like flowers that wither and decay. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think you're right to put that, you know, refuge and reward so closely together. And again, even if we take that idea of a fortress or a castle, right, what you in war, what you put in the fortress is, is not only the people to keep them safe, you do that, but it is those treasures as well, right? And that does give us then a a beautiful picture of the, the of what God has promised to us. Hmm. So, okay, we we hail Jesus as our King, as our Savior. We're lauding Him. I think the picture of Palm Sunday is perfect, particularly thinking about the season of Advent. That's how the season of Advent often starts: is with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a Palm on Palm Sunday, and so in repentance over our sins, we are now hailing Him, praising Him as the one who, who must be our refuge and our reward. Because without him, we we have nothing. Without him, we waste away even like these flowers that wither and decay. Take us into the language of that second part of this stanza. Yeah, so Isaiah 40 says, right, the grass withers and the flower fades uh, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Um, and then it says this, right, surely the people are grass. Uh, and then it you know goes on with probably the part we maybe have memorized, hopefully the most, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever, right? It's a, a beautiful passage there. But the first part is interesting in that, you know, we get these pictures of uh, this vegetation, we might say, dying. Uh, and we go, yep, right? We all know this, uh, especially when, you know, the seasons are changing. Uh, like they have been again recently, right? All those beautiful things that grew uh, in the summertime, all of a sudden, right? They're fading away and they're dying. Uh, but that line just kind of hits you in the middle, right? Surely the people are grass, right? Uh, and, you know, in 
uh, our hymnal, uh, the Lutheran hymnal, I always remember that the opening to the funeral there uh, started with the reading of Job 14, 1 through 2, which says, More man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And this is the picture that without Christ, especially from the perspective of sort of what you can see on earth, I mean, this this kind of language doesn't deal a lot with sort of uh, the eternal nature of punishment or something like that apart from Christ. But it's kind of a picture from this side to say, all you can see is that these humans show up and yeah, they might bloom like flowers for a while, but then they also fade away. And, and that's the best thing we could kind of say about humanity apart from Christ. And it's not a great picture really, right? Go out now. And if you've you know, if you live in a part of the country where you, you know, still can see the ground, it ain't pretty, right? I mean, in a lot of places, uh, and, you know, again, go and visit those who God is, you know, one way blessed with a, a long life. And yet many times, you know, all the troubles uh, of the human body that are there. And he, you know, he just says here, if, if we didn't have your grace, that's all we could say. Uh, but, you know, blessedly, uh, if we can use the image here, God has promised us a new spring, right? A new resurrection uh, of the body um, so that we're not just flowers that wither and decay. We could still say we do that, uh, but we're also going to spring forth again one day, never never to wither again. Yeah, I, I love the, the way that this, sec, or this third stanza ends, the second half of the third stanza, because it is a, a reminder, you know, think about what we've sung so far that, we're going to listen to the preaching that Christ is near. This is good news. Our lives must be cleansed from sin, and there must be fruit of repentance and faith within the heart. And when you, you think about trying to do that, if that's something that you must do on your own, then there's, there's no hope. And so this is the prayer, I think, that naturally arises from it. Lord, we hail you as the one who who does these things for us, who comes to us as our Savior to be that refuge and reward. Because without your grace, without your free gift, we have nothing. And I, you mentioned how how this second half of the stanza goes back to Isaiah forty. Saint Peter quotes that in his first epistle, that passage that you read earlier, and, and he he adds this. He says, "The word of the Lord remains forever." And then Peter writes, "And this word." is the good news that was preached to you. I mean, so that that gift that comes from God, this grace, that's actually been preached to you so that this isn't a hymn of, of hopelessness, but a hymn of great hope because this Savior whom we hail, he comes to give us this refuge and this reward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as we turn to the next verse, we see, you know, uh, increasing images that kind of show us the effect of Christ's coming. All right, so let's take a look at stanza four now. Lay on the sick thy healing hand, and make the fallen strong to stand. Show us the glory of thy face till beauty springs in every place. That is stanza four of the hymn on Jordan's Bank, The Baptist Cry. So take us into the stanza. we got a healing for the sick in the first line. Yeah, and I think here, you know, if I can give you an image again, I always remember in my fieldwork congregation, we had a a very elderly lady, and my memory, you know, serves me right. She was in her late 80s, and she had returned to the church after a long uh, period away from Christ and his church. And I always remember when she was welcomed into membership, um, she came up to the communion rail, and, and she literally could not stand for that long. 
And so two of her brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who quite frankly did not know her very well, they stood on either side and, and held her up so that she could receive the Lord's body and blood. That's a picture, right, uh, in you know the hands there of her brothers and sisters, but ultimately of what God does, right, when he comes to us is he heals us and he makes us strong enough to stand. Uh, you know, you can think here, speaking of John the Baptist, right, we later get this account in the Gospels of John the Baptist sending his, uh, his messengers, his disciples to go and talk uh, to Jesus to figure out whether he really is the Christ. And this is what Christ points to, right? He says, look at all these people that are sick, that are being healed. Look at those that are weak. They are now strong. And of course, the last one, just as important, right? Those uh, you know who are languishing now, they have the good news preached to them. Uh, and so this is what Christ did as soon as he came. And this, you know, verse takes us to this kind of now and not yet reality of all of this, right? We pray that right now Christ would do these things because we know he has and we know he can. And yet we know, right, that that'll only be fulfilled on that day when we see the glory of his face. And on that day, right, there's not just going to be some healed people, but everyone healed and there'll be no weak people anymore because everyone uh, who believes will be strong. Uh, that Revelation 21, right? Behold, I am making all things new. That's the end to which we are pushing. But even now we see God manifest his ability uh, to uh, take care of the consequences of sin. So if I can put this in the terms of the Lord's Prayer, then those first two lines, we should at least in part understand them as a prayer according to the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. We we are praying here that there would be physical healing in this life. That's at least part of this, right? Yeah, certainly. Okay, so but then at the same time, as you said, there's a, you use the the phrase now and not yet, that, that we do pray for that now, but we also know that in this life, which is still in the flesh and still corrupted by our sin, that there is a final answer coming, the resurrection, the not yet. This would be, again, to, to use the, the Lord's Prayer, this would be perhaps the deliver us from evil petition is in this, this stands as well, that even if there is not healing for the body in this life, I pray that I would be delivered from evil in in the end and be brought to to dwell forever in the resurrection with Christ. You've got both things going on in the stanza. Yeah, absolutely. I would say if you want to, hopefully not to confuse things, but drive the two <laughs> together, right? Thy kingdom come, right? Is, yeah, is yeah. that prayer of both uh, the now, right? That God's kingdom may come amongst us, as we say in the meaning of that, but also that it would come in all of its fullness at the end of time. Yeah, that was that was the other petition that was on my mind too, as as I was thinking there. So I'm glad I'm glad you you thought the same. I appreciate that. Okay, so so lay on the sick the healing hand, make the fallen strong to stand. You also brought up the image of of a person physically being helped to receive the Lord's body and blood in Holy Communion, and I think that too is so very appropriate because when you when you look at the way, particularly our hymnody speaks of the Lord's Supper. It is often spoken of with a healing aspect. So, I mean, there's even a hymn, it's number 620 in the Lutheran service book, that's called Jesus Comes Today with Healing. And it goes on to extol the Lord's Supper as, as that gift that does bring healing. And, and maybe we don't always think about that that way. And this isn't to say that, the, you know, you receive the Lord's Supper and 
whatever was ailing you physically will be made better, you know, at the snap of your fingers, just like that. But there is this reality that when I receive the body and blood of Jesus into my mouth, that he has given me what is was sometimes called the medicine of immortality, that by being connected to him in that way, I will in fact live forever. I will receive that eternal healing. So I think the connection you made to, to the reception of the Lord's Supper, that's a fantastic one to make. Yeah. You know, Paul in the one place, of course, says that those that are receiving the Lord's Supper unworthily, right, some of them are sick and die. And it's sort of, you know, well, what's the opposite of that, right? That when we receive the Lord's Supper, again, there is this thing that this delivers to us healing. And why? Because it is Jesus and that's what he does. Like you said, again, not not in a one-for-one correspondence that every, you know, physical trouble we have goes away. But I think you are right. If we want to understand the fullness of what God is giving, that is certainly part of what the church has always understood, that this is not only, if we can put it this way, good for your soul, but it is good for your body as well. Yeah. Well, and I think the the post-communion blessing, uh, that's probably not the right, the common dismissal that's given in the hymnal, that's what I'm looking for. You know, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen you. And, and most recently, the hymnal says to, to say, strengthen you in body and soul, that there are physical blessings to receiving the Lord's Supper. And I think, you know, this is probably connected to the way Jesus speaks in John chapter six about eating his flesh, drinking his blood and having life within you and being raised from the dead on the last day. I think that'd be one of the places in scripture we could, we could make those connections to the Lord's Supper that, you know, this is as one, as another hymn says that this food can death destroy by being connected to Christ and having his own body and blood that I receive for my forgiveness. I know that I will live eternally. And even if I don't experience that healing in this life, I know it's coming on the last day. Yeah, no, absolutely. When bru- when beauty springs in every place, right? There's that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And so that's where this hymn does, you know, as, as much as we're talking about John the Baptist on the bank of the Jordan River, we are looking forward to the return of Christ, that second advent that is coming on the last day. This hymn points us there as well. There's one final stanza, stanza five. All praise, eternal Son, to thee, whose advent sets thy people free, whom with the Father we adore and Holy Spirit evermore. Amen, as as TLH would have us say there at the end. So we've got stanza five of On Jordan's Bank, the Baptist Cry. Now, this, if you're looking in Lutheran service book, you'll see that there is a triangle in front of this. What, is, what does that triangle indicate, Pastor Hoppy? Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, even when you get to a verse like this, you know, it's it's almost like the body wants to stand, right? Uh, uh, and it's, yeah. you know, in a lot of churches, we have that tradition that uh, when that triangle there, it is a reminder to us that this is a song of doxology to our triune God. Uh, and therefore we stand, you know, I often say to my people, you know, again, imagine again, being there on that day, you know, no one's going to have to say, please rise. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. you're either going to rise naturally or fall to your knees. Either one, right. Would be appropriate. Uh, but I always tell them, right. We're practicing, especially you know, occasionally I'll pick like three hymns that have these and, you know, people get into this talk of up and down and up and down. I say, you're just practicing, right? It's, it's right. going to be that way on the last day. Uh, but you know, these, I think we do love these, you know, doxological praise pieces here to our triune God, because they just bring everything together that our triune God is the God who saves us. Uh, and, you know, even in this, right, the emphasis here is obviously, you know, usually we're used to Father, 
son and spirit. We could say in this verse, we get son, father, and spirit in order. Well, why? Well, because of this season of Advent, which is particularly focused again on Christ's Advent, his coming. Uh, and we're told there, of course, that his Advent is the one that sets people free. Uh, and indeed, you know, John eight thirty six. 36, uh, maybe uh, this is still ringing in your ears from Reformation. I know it's been a little while, but right, this is the text for Reformation. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's what we're kind of, you know, adding our amen to is that, yep, when Jesus comes, this is what happens. Again, both now as he comes to us in word, uh, as he comes to us in the supper, uh, we can go backwards and say, of course, when he came in the incarnation uh, at his birth in uh, Bethlehem, uh, then also when he finally will come on the last day, all of those are the events that set us free from sin, death, and the devil. I, I like the the way you connected just the standing that is traditional in many congregations to what we sang in, in stanza four. Why, of course, you want to stand. It, it would, if you are able, you are going to stand for this praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even just thinking, you know, that this hymn stanza reminds us that this is this is God's will. The triune God has willed to save us. So you were talking earlier about who is it that that dwells in my heart? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus? Is it God? You know, it's, you can't always do that kind of math on on the triune God. God wants to save you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this triune God, the one true God, he wants to save you. And so all praise and honor belongs to him. And particularly in the season of Advent, because the Son, the eternal Son, right? I mean, you've got God himself has made his advent. He has come among us as a human being to set us free. True God, true man. He is the one. He is our savior, our refuge, our reward. We hail him as our savior. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us to look at the hymn on Jordan's Bank, The Baptist Cry. That's number 344 in Lutheran Service Book. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. So glad to be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions, or if you'd like to let us know what your favorite Advent hymn is, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.